welcome to Hair Dark Materials. I'm Faye. Hi. And I'm Rachel. Hello. This is usually a podcast where we're reading through and discussing Philip Pullman's His Dark Materials novels a chapter at a time, spoiler free. But in this very special episode, we're interviewing Joel Collins, the production designer on the His Dark Materials TV show. interview we've gone and done it again we have this was so much fun joel is really lovely to talk to and he wears quite a few hats within the sphere of the top people on this on this show so he's got some really interesting insights and seems to be really one of the main driving forces behind how this show has come together which is so exciting to talk to him about absolutely it was super interesting to hear his thoughts kind of from the top down really about the overarching show it was really good to have his knowledge of how the entire show came together. Absolutely. You're not here to listen to us. You're not. We're not going to keep you. Let's get into this interview. (laughs) Let's get into it. Hi, Joel. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, lovely to meet you both. Yeah, and you. Yeah, we appreciate your time and uh, your work on uh, Historic Materials. We've had so many questions for you and the listeners are very excited. Well, I'm interested to see what, what everyone thinks. You know, it's obviously when we're inside the show like we are, it's, it's sometimes hard to step outside and see it from everyone else's perspective, you know, so. Yeah, definitely. So if it's okay with you, we'll, do, we'll kick off with some questions. Sure. Cool. So these first ones are from Rach and I, and then we'll move on to the ones that we've had from listeners, although some might overlap because they usually do. So first question is... Can you explain, because there might be a lot of our listeners that don't really know what the job of a production designer is, would you mind explaining that for us? The basic uh, layer of the job is to work with the production, with the show's creative elements, the script, the directors, all the creative teams on the show, uh, to be a a part of, of that team. But the specific role is to look at the visual elements within the show so the production designer's job uh, as a standard is building sets and designing the world elements i'm slightly different i mean my interests are slightly different i joined the show because my my interests are slightly different in the sense that i'm designing the show but i i, I try and look at it holistically so i i personally and it sounds kind of funny but i see it like visual scripting working very closely with the words uh sometimes a an image can say words with no words. If you see what I mean, you can stand in a room or a space or a world or a precipice and you can uh, remove a whole layer of dialogue and just look and everybody knows what's going on. That involves creatures, characters, weird things, environmental world building. I I joined this show from my previous show because that's where my heart lies and that's where I'm interested in, in the kind of creative visual scripting side of collaboration within the creative teams to put everything on the screen. And that includes all the VFX, the live action, working closely with everybody, cinematographers, costume, and the kind of symbiosis of how uh, the worlds go from set, like real textural, real elements to through to the VFX. So trying to see, see it as a, in, in a much more holistic way. Sometimes you could boil it down to making a room that someone stands in. But I think in this current world, you know, I always encourage new designers to be a bigger part of world creation not just room creation you know absolutely that's yeah that's brilliant it's very evident from listening to other people that have worked on the show that you all work very closely as almost like a hive mind of fans of the books and so we would really love to know about your personal journey with the books if you'd read them before you got involved with the show and if so like how they came to you in your life and how the books impacted you the books first came on my radar when I had just finished designing a film called Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, the Disney version of it. It had been a very intense two and a half year process or more. And at the end of that, the director who's I collaborated with for years, and again, it was a very small little creative group. The, the director, Garth, I remember him saying, read the book. So I read the book because we, we were talking or looking at maybe making that as, a, as the movie. And can't remember why, but I think it was also partly so close to what we had just done in the sense of anything 
the, the relationship between having just finished Hitchhiker's Guide and the idea of doing something so big and fantasy as another movie was a bit... We went off and did Son of Rambo instead, which is a, a solely, completely different type of film. So we, we, that drifted off. But I remember reading the books, and I was like, oh, wow, okay, this is this is insane. That These are amazing. And this is huge. I thought Hitchhikers was the challenge. That was another level of challenge in the sense that at least I, you know, we did, we, we, with Hitchhikers, we made Vogons. We were the last job that Henson's shot in Britain with live action puppets. And we were so eager to do stuff. Henson's then shut down the kind of British operation and moved to America. And we, we got the benefit of, of all this amazing talent. And, and those two films were quite, were, were really interesting because you had to go full CG with the animals on this as a movie. And and it was going to be its, its real big challenge. You know, how do you do it? Lots of things like how you interpret the material come into play. So I, I love the material, deeply fascinated by the kind of maturity of it. And it was way ahead of its time in the sense of, offering young people a very mature look at storytelling that is really for the more discerning, intelligent, older person, as it were, but it kind of covered all the bases. It didn't insult the young. It fascinated the older, uh, anyone from teen up to, you know, 90. It would fascinate them. And so I left it there. You know, I thought, wow, this is a real interesting challenge, but, but I left it behind and moved on. So I think when it came back as a possible TV show, I realised then that the the all the material and the kind of the weight of that material and what happened with making the movie, much like I actually, to be honest, I felt like Hitchhiker's such a complicated novel needed to be a TV show. I loved the TV show and making the movie made me realise through the process that I needed to, we needed 10 hours to make the movie, otherwise none of it makes any sense. And I think when it came back on my radar as a TV show, I was like, uh, I think that's got my name on it. <laughs> So I approached. I basically went to them and said, "I think you need you need me. You you might have to use me to uh, to help you bring this to the to the screen." And I think they looked at me like, "You cocky idiot!" <laughs> and and I was just I meant it. I wasn't being I wasn't being funny. I was like, "No, no, no, no." I think actually it's really complicated. It's what I love. I love the stuff that everyone is terrified by. I love the stuff which involves being grounded, but being maybe fantastical. I love the story, the slightly kiddie nature to the very mature nature of the material and, and how it engages and, and uh, confounds and challenges and questions. So it was all there. And I just thought, how do I, you know, so yeah, so that's how it came up. I heard about it through a director. I was working on Black Mirror and I was talking to one of the directors on Black Mirror and he was like, you know, this is coming. Uh, and I was like, I think I need to, I think I need to do that. And you kind of answered it in that question, but I suppose I'm wondering if there's any more to that story. You said, I should be involved in this. How did that process go of, of you saying, I want to be involved in this, to then being involved and being the production designer? There's a kind of core team because I'm, I'm the designer and I'm an exec producer working very closely with two lead execs. There's quite a few exec producers. Uh, but that kind of role uh, is the expansion role I'm talking about in the sense of having a voice in areas that you wouldn't necessarily have a voice in. So uh, being able to be part of the fabrication or creation of the story, being being responsible for some of it from its early inception of how we're going to get it to be the story we need it to be, to how we're going to deliver the show to the TV screen itself or you know to the streaming platform, and being there from the beginning to the bitter end to fight for it to get on the screen rather than doing a specific job, which the, the other role encompasses. It, it was, again, it was a kind of role that I was doing on Black Mirror. I was employing designers. I was uh, looking after those shows globally. Um, I was working with Charlie Brooker. So when I when I went to Dan McCulloch, who was the producer of uh, His Dark Materials, who was working on getting it up and running, and I, I got my agent to contact his, you know, his agent or something and just say, can we meet? And we met up and we had a chat and we met up and we just we just clicked which was great. And then he said, well, there's somebody else you really need to click with. And that's Jane Tranter, who's the big boss of this show. She's the one, the dream, she's the dreamer who's kind of said this is possible when everyone else said that's mad, you know. And I was like, well, that's how I feel. It was interesting. And Jane was very, very clear with me. She said, oh, I never thought I'd make this show with somebody I didn't know. It's going to be such a huge journey. It's going to be so complicated. But this is really interesting. So I said, well, let's get to know each other. So we kind of, the three of us, Dan, Jane, myself, while Jack Thorne was writing scripts 
And obviously we had the great guidance from Philip that we just built a relationship. It's now been three years, knowing that 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 was a relationship that could go on for a decade. You know, it could go on for a very long time. And if you don't work hard to know that you're all going to get on and to know that you're going to love each other, care about each other, creatively support each other, you know, you're like a family. If there's bits of that that don't work, forget it, because it's too long a journey to take without being able to be uh, kind of by each other's sides to the level you have to be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. With it being such a long journey from script writing through to like concept art and all of the logistics of production just to getting it onto the screen, were there any things that you were really conscious of being like the biggest challenge you had to tackle that you were excited to tackle or things that were you thought would be easy and turned out to be so much more difficult than you thought? Uh, yeah, I thought nothing was going to be easy. And I actually really worked out that the failures were going to be the foundation, the concrete on which we set the show. And if we didn't, and we weren't willing to make those failures, really, really be bold and, and, and just fail. Like let, I, I came in early enough to say, look, we've got to fail. I've got to get in there. I've got to try stuff out. I've got to fail. If I don't fail, if I think I'm right and I fail in the process, it's way more dangerous than us failing now. And that that's the same with the script as it is with visual... Uh, development and uh, character development, creature development, casting discussions. You've got to try stuff out, and you, you, you know. So for me, failure is the is the mud and the dirt and the mix, the, the the melting pot that solidifies below your feet, and you can stand there and go, yeah, we we did it. But that that stuff is 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 the experience that that no one could ever take away. You know, you tried that, didn't work. Try that, it didn't work. So when it comes to all the work, you know, there's a huge raft of stuff we tried knowing deliberately that we could try everything and we weren't ashamed to fail. It's very important because I think if you let ego or pride or kind of, you know, your belief in yourself get in the way, the fall is much more catastrophic. Luckily, I have a phenomenal team of visual artists around, a huge talent pool of, of people. Some of them worked with me for over 20 years and a massive kind of familial trust uh, in that. And some of them groundbreaking. You know, we've got virtual reality apps that we've created. Uh, we went full 3D, augmented reality to build sets and design stuff. I think the most interesting and complex thing was was lining up the VFX vendors because I had a faith and a belief that the right choice, we'd made the right choice. And I knew that if we explored it the right way and the right character came on board or characters came on board, we'd be, we'd be okay. Everyone was terrified. And weirdly, I was never terrified about that. I, I just knew that it was going to be the right choice and just another member of the family and we'd be okay. And I knew Russell, who came on board as the VFX supervisor when I when I was eager to get them on Black Mirror where we did Callister together. And I knew he was a fan of the books. I was utterly committed to making that work and there were so many obstacles and interesting things early on in the way, uh, like director uh, opinion in the sense of types of uh, vendors, you know, complex you know challenges in the sense of getting different vendors to quote and looking at the journey of going through all the different vfx people you can look at for the show so we've done all the due diligence and somewhere inside me i was like well it's easy that russell loves this i know him and he'll be fine and he's going to be amazing and smash it out of the ballpark but it was a, it was a matter of going through a huge process to get to the point where we all went fine, we're we're, we're going to launch this, and it was it was it was an important moment because you needed somebody else with my but faith and belief uh, that went, yeah, I'm going to smash it. Don't worry, I'm going to go for it. And uh, it wasn't afraid to stand up in a room and put their hand up and say, hang on, no, please, or try stuff out or fail if they had to with me. But that was a big thing because I think loads of people are, how are we going to do the demons? And I was like, well, you know, we've moved on so much since the movie. We're just going to do the demons with great VFX and, and great talent. It was actually, for me, the big worry was how we're going to put this amazing story on screen. Weirdly, the demons were just one part of it. But interestingly, early on, it was everyone's nemesis. And looking back, I realise now that having made the show, having made two seasons, and we're in the process of that second season, having gone through that with a load of people, I realised now how few of the people had actually done VFX involved on this level, you know? And I was probably just more experienced in puppets and VFX and creatures and everything. I've done that for 25 years as a designer and 30 years almost working from Henson's on the shows I worked on nearly 30 years ago. So it's been in my veins, it's in my blood, that stuff. And I realise now... And I realised it too on Black Mirror, you know, it takes time. People have to experience that to feel as confident as they need to. So so for this, to move to the TV market with the level of VFX was probably the single most complex challenge for the group. 
for everyone to have a belief that, that it was possible, you know? Yeah, such a challenge. We spoke to Russell Dodgson actually a couple of uh, weeks, um, weeks, months. I can't remember time in lockdown, but at the <laughs> beginning of lockdown, yeah. yeah. <laughs> he told us all about the process of the demons, and and they they look great. And also, he spoke very highly of you. <laughs> so. I think we don't. I don't think we could have done it without each other, you know. And I think that goes for we couldn't do it without Jane and her belief and faith. I, I I couldn't do it without Jane and Dan. And my relationship with those two guys is so critical. If nothing else, because like, for instance, Dan and I just sat there every night going, how are we going to do this tomorrow? What are we going to do? Every night for years, we sat staring into maybe a beer or a glass of wine, looking at the next day's challenges, trying to work it out. And that support and relationship was key, you know? The, the, the kind of core group wasn't very big with such a mammoth task. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you mentioned the movie. Were you guys influenced in any way by that or did you set the Golden Compass film completely aside and start fresh or did you pull any ideas in from the movie? Well, we've, we've got producing partners who are part of the process there. They learn quite a lot. Deborah Forte, who was on the film, there's kind of a few of the, the, the team from New Line who were kind of interested and eager to express some of their, their the failings and the successes, you know, the things that they learn, editorial things like demons, amounts of demons, you know, where they tried on the movie, they spent millions and maybe slashed back on the demons because it was too distracting. And they were eager to talk to us about, in simple terms, just in a few conversations, like we tried this, it didn't work, so be, be careful, you know, could waste money. And I think we all knew that with things like VFX laying in after, if you plan for a lot of demons, it's not just expensive, but it looks like you're in a zoo or something. So everyone had this opinion about the wear of the demons occasionally, but if you actually put them all in, everyone would be like, Jesus, that's way too intense for me, you know. So there's a fine line of just getting the story told at the right points the right way and not overplaying it. And, and as I say, the movie tried and they overplayed it and had to peel it right back. So you can't win. You've got too little, we've got too many, and one's distracting and one makes everyone sometimes ask a question. That's because none of it's real. And the problem is we're doing something completely so unreal in that sense. You've got to find your plausible layer and go for it so that the audience don't jar and switch it off, you know, which is the worst side of it. We were careful with the film because our benefit, I mean, every designer uses taste. So I've got all of my opinion and taste is what I bring to uh, something I do. And my taste might be different to the designer who's with the same agent with me in America. And he's a, he just did Blade Runner the latest Blade Runner movie. Oh, wow. You know, he's a huge designer. And you can't say, oh, well, that was, it, well, you know, like he brought his taste of flavour to the to the film, whether it's everyone's taste or flavour. We weren't looking in any way to trash it or to copy it. We were looking for a, a more contemporary authenticity. I, I think, weirdly, when they made the film, it felt like they could never quite make the second book because the film itself had a certain layer and a flavour and a kind of like like a glaze over it. And we worked out that we need to take that away. We need to strip it back because we, we need to integrate with our world and other worlds. And you can't put a glaze over one world and then have it seamlessly gel with something that doesn't have the glaze, you know? Then what you're doing is you've got stylized our world that's over-stylized. You've got stylized Lyra's world. So we worked out that we were in it for the long haul. The film was just the first book too, and it didn't quite end at the bright point of the first book. And I read all the books and Philip was writing as we were kind of in prep for still creating more of the books. So I, I kind of, I read all the books and, and my, my kind of opening gambit was to ignore the film, look at what Philip had, look at the journey he'd taken us on and start from the back end, start from the Amber Spyglass, start from the very end, the, the point of what happens right at that last minute and work my way back to the beginning so that my decisions not Easter eggs, but my decisions were always intelligently layered with what's to come and the influences and the ideas and the style and the detail and the little things and the, the little gadget, the little elements, they all, they all somehow laced in. It wasn't like we were just going to race towards doing the first book and then quickly read the next one and go like, now what do we do, you know? Mm. You don't want to paint yourself into a corner. <laughs> well, no, you, you basically, I think when, when you're a writer, you might paint, you might write yourself out of a hole because you go, I wish I'd hmm, I released the first book. I'm now writing the second and I just realised that it would have been quite fun to have written that in the first, but obviously I didn't because I'm writing this. So, you know, writers go through, they don't write all the books before they release them, whereas we had that luxury of all the books. 
we had the luxury of eight hours and we had the yeah all that information to to dissect so really it was it wasn't oh what do we do with uh the northern lights it was how what do we do with the cannon you know with dark materials you know what how are we going to solve this puzzle so you know for me creatively solving it goes all the way to the title sequence all the way to everything it all runs into everything you know there's hidden gems in there that uh, I, I was eager to squeeze in with Jane and we were like, oh, let's like, you know, let's hide those little details knowing what's coming, you know, because we've tried to work ahead. Yeah, absolutely. We did some episodes covering the TV series. I remember seeing that title sequence for the first time and being to Rich like, oh my God, I can see, I can see angels in there. Is the subtle knife in there somewhere? And just like loads of these really nice hidden easter eggs which we really enjoyed it's definitely something fans of the books enjoy is spotting those easter eggs so yeah if there's any in this first season that you think that would be easy to miss we would love to hear what you've managed to slip in there well that's the that's the issue i think the, the thing is i'm so deep now into my point of the journey with lyra is so far so far ahead to get my way back through the Chittagarsan landscape emotionally to remember the detail is quite hard they're layered you know the hits come in simple ways through the show but they're not as the show isn't about that season one is very much a kind of um a show about a journey and growth and you know experience and you know when you you move into the subtle knife and there's a new relationship that's 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 found and, and growth it's the whole thing the dynamic shift and the maturity change you know the kind of level of maturity and experience changes the emotional stakes are, are more interesting higher more com- you know they're, they're complex in season one they get you know it gets just it moves in it's an interesting way but i can't talk too much about scene two i think <laughs> every time we do an interview we get so many questions about season two and we're always just like we can't ask them about season two they're not going to be able to tell us anything <laughs> so, no not, not not yet <laughs> i mean you could probably probably talk to jane she might just who knows but i don't I'm, I'm cautious. <laughs> That's fine. Well, it just means we'll have to get you back Absolutely. after season two. <laughs> yes, yeah, it's, it's fine. Yeah, that's, that's easier. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what we would love to ask, um, and feels a little bit safer, being as we know that season three, it's not necessarily greenlit yet, so we can ask theoretical, hypothetical questions about it. We'd love to know what aspect of that third book, what challenge of that most excites you, because it's so rich there's so much going on. We'd love to know what kind of section of the book you're most excited to get your teeth into. I think The Land of the Dead is a huge, complex, kind of human question. And it is one that, you know, like that idea of being able to go into a place where everyone who's died is gone uh, is really, really interesting. There's multiple things that I find are going to be challenging in, in the making of The Amber Spyglass. Angels play a huge part. But they are, they are characters, you know, the characters that almost are quite grounded. So they're not like they're just ethereal things, wisps in the air, you know, there's kind of sentient characters. So to create that is an interesting challenge. I found that on season one, and without talking about season two, I found that on season two, one of the things that I think creating the worlds, the physical worlds for the actors, one of the things I loved the most was we built, everyone thinks it's a VFX show and there's demons in it and there are VFX shots, but we build almost everything. Everything is, most things are real, you know, physically real. And people will see that in season two. But if you look at season one, Oxford, the retiring room is a set. Uh, Her bedroom, everything, Oxford's a set. London, her apartment, you know, everything's a set. Uh, It's all in the studio. Trollison, the small fishing village, it's all, that's in the studio, or that's a huge set outside the studio. The mountains are in the studio. It's all fabricated. What's most interesting is with those fabrications, and we'll have this most interesting journey on season three for this reason, is that you 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 sense whether you've hit something right by the way the, the crew react in that space and the actors. So, for instance, Mrs. Coulter's part, everyone quite liked Oxford. It's nice, you know, the warmth, the fire glowing. You know, you look around and the, there was stained glass with all the Jordan College logos and there was demons statues up in the walls and carved into the fireplace if you look close you'll see it all if you don't look and you blink it's gone but it's all there and i think everyone just watches it and thinks we shot in oxford but we didn't you know it's all created we try to shoot oxford but there's not much real lyra world in oxford you know it's like trying to create that world of other otherness isn't that easy what happened from that when everyone went into mrs coulter's apartment having gone on the egyptian boats which had real kind of heart and feeling and the actors kept on falling asleep 
and you know like relaxing and everyone was kind of chill, chill and it had a real kind of lovely feel everyone got to miss Gold's apartment went i want to live there and then after about a few days they felt edgy and then they kind of felt like this place is creepy and it's <laughs> It's Mrs. Coulter, you know, like she's she's engaging. She's she, she it's the story that Lyra experienced. She goes there. Wow, this is amazing. I love it. But after a few days, or you know, you know, she starts to get suspicious. This is all kind of a bit too good to be true. Something's a bit wrong. What's, what's the creepy sound? What's the noise? What's the the scuttling? What's the what's in that room over there? Why is it locked? And and all of this stuff starts to like pervasive kind of like you know the feeling. And what was interesting is the crew felt the same. And I knew that when they, they loved Trollocent, you know, they all went camped out in this real town we built for one episode. And they kind of, Joel, can I have, I was like, I don't care, have what you want. Can I live in that? Can I, can I put all my stuff in this house? And I'm like, take it. I made Otto the director, the mayor of the town. And then basically he's kind of got, never went back because I was like, it was, it was, it was quite hard to put it together. But the truth is everyone loved it. It was like they loved being out in Brecon Beacons in this fake town that was just a real town that was only there and then was going to disappear and never be there again. And what was interesting is the emotional impact on the crew was quite palpable sometimes. They got edgy. They got upset. They loved it. They felt really light and happy. And so it's like experiencing it as much as you want the actors to. I never really thought that if you go that deep in environmentally, it's experiential, not just for the actors. You know, I was a bit like, oh, God, this is... You know, they're all on a journey here. And um, and I think with season three, it's going to be really interesting traversing those worlds, the Malefa, the Land of the Dead. You know, it's, it's a bit weird. I'm not worried about the Malefa. I love the idea of the Malefa. I think they they, they hold a great um, great wisdom and, and great heart. And, you know, the, there's a great depth to their story. And, you know, putting them on screen is challenging. But, uh, but I love the idea of that. I think... Adding a sense of authenticity to Land of the Dead is going to be really important. So I'm fascinated to do that. As you read the book, you realise what a challenge it is. Yeah, so many challenges to that third mm. book. <laughs> we um we spoke to, like I said, we spoke to Russell. We also spoke to Daphne, and they both said Land of the Dead for that question. Yeah, everyone's so stoked to get in there and meet their own death. <laughs> Uh, one of the things I was going to ask you, you mentioned Trollsund, and when we spoke to Daphne, we asked her about sets and life on set and things like that. And she talked a lot about Trollsund, and she also talked a lot about the Bolvanga set, because she mentioned that the sets were just, like you just mentioned, so extravagant and just like the real life thing. How does that happen from conception to completion? How, how does that process go? Because I imagine it must take a lot of time. Internally, we have our own group of creative like artists. So what, what we do is you know, start with your theory on what it is in the story. And sometimes I have a very clear idea and sometimes I, uh, I have less of a kind of clarity. But quite often you find that clarity through a bit of research and, and thinking. And I, I, setting the tone, I think key thing was setting a kind of flavour, mid-century flavour, knowing that in the book... There was like a Victoriana uh, of London and, you know, there's coal fires burning and it's steampunk and it's got a kind of Victoriana feel that Philip gave. And that really was for nostalgia. And that was to get the audience, the reader, to like feel nostalgic when they, they to get a feeling, like a sense inside them when they're reading the book. And I realised, you know, that, okay, we're catering for a slightly different audience in the sense of the book was written then, this is now, but I wanted to play on the nostalgia. So I basically slightly upgraded his nostalgia, but kept nostalgia all the same. I went to the 50s, 40s to 60s, playing around with that era, like the mid-century era, so that there was a slightly contemporary tone, brutalistic kind of flavour or, you know, 30s, 40s, you know, like play. I, I took away the Victorian and moved it up to another era, as it were, that we could all still identify with, that had still an authenticity to it, that still had a level of you know nostalgia to it, but was closer to to people, and and actually played on the played a better hand of style for the show, you know. So culture, you could have style. There could be this kind of concrete brutalism and stuff in Bullman and Asriel. Like everyone went to Asriel's pad and thought, God, I'd live here. This is insane. That's born out of his madness, this chaos, this steals everywhere, whatever. But it kind of looked like a pretty funky mountain lab, you know. But again, had this slightly mid-century 50s feel in the sense of materials and detail. So when, once you've got your sort of flavour together, in the sense of how this is what it's going to taste like, this is this is what I want the audience to feel, you then start designing. I work very closely with Dan May uh, and the painting practice team who do a lot of the concept art that translates in 3D into previs. 
So what we did was we make sure we, we connected the artwork into previous. So you do like a digital storyboarding process uh, where you're taking the concept art. So it's not wasted. You're putting it into 3D to turn that 3D into the shots you need. You then calculate breakout. We made maps of all the worlds and all the moments and all the beats. So we literally had big maps on the, on the, on the wall that connected all the characters' journeys. And those visual maps, a bit like looking at a visual book, you know, like a, to opening a book up. But what you do is you, you put the actual hills, thing, character goes, a death. So you can literally see on one huge grid where people get to at any point of the story. So it's like looking, cross-referencing everyone. Oh, they're there at that point. They're there. So you know that. Then you go and you zoom into each space. You then calculate space in 3D. You zoom out of it again. You look at the overview because that's for VFX. You go back in and look at the detail. What I was always eager to do was build just enough so that if you went around a corner, you could get lost. So you didn't just walk around a corner and bump into a blue screen. You'd go around the corner and bump into another wall and go left or right. So everything was designed like a jigsaw puzzle that didn't break the illusion for the actor. So so ultimately, we kept this. And everyone was, drove people mad because we worked it all out for VFX. We did the layouts to work to give the effects the world creation, but really worked it out. I wanted to, if all else failed and we ran out of money and actually, hey, we need to put all the money into demons because that's what we can afford, we've still got a world that's in, that's involved and real, you know. Uh, we're not just literally hitting blue screen everywhere because I think on a, on a job like this, you know, Russell's challenge was how does he spread that money and each time do brilliantly in every shot. That's why it's not a green screen show or a blue screen show because the, we had to try and lean into as much physical reality as we could to invest the money in the right places to get the best quality demons and effects. and yeah, so It's a real complex equation. But that's why, say, Lyra or Daphne would walk around and kind of get lost, because we tried to give her as much reality and plausibility, which is why we had the puppeteers. Todd, who came on as the lead guy, puppeteer, I knew from Henson's. I think I worked with him on Babe and Never Ending Story and the Flintstones. And, you know, so I'd known this guy for so long and he, he came in and built a puppeteering team and they they added a level of authenticity. So in the world you've got around you, you've then got these little creatures and huge things that are kind of living and quite fool the eye of it because they, you can interact with these things. Even though they'll never be there, the, the effects will take over. You know, I don't know if that answer, that's a very spurious kind of explosion of an answer. All the info <laughs> you have for us is, is very interesting, regardless of the question that we've asked. So <laughs> don't worry. <laughs> it shows how many facets there are. The job has one title or two titles, but there's so many facets to all the different things that you have influence over. It makes it difficult to be like A, B, C. Finished. You can't. I mean, like Russell, for instance, is you know is is part director, part VFX supervisor, part kind of VFX design or creator. You know, like we've all got the same challenge when you're in the smaller top creative group of people who ultimately want everyone to feel secure in a very unstably weird place of kind of creative oddity. So everyone's grasping to know that they're okay and it's safe and something this complex is being glued together in the right way. You needed to be probably confident enough to look at every role or every space and know that you, you could try and have an answer if you needed it. It breaks when you compartmentalise a bit too much because you need to be, um, there's a big overlap in the creative team to make it work. Quite often in the creative process, you have to kill your darlings. Are there any creative babies that you had within this show that were like projects or small facets that you were really invested in that didn't make the final cut? I think there are so many. I remember this producer, American producer, going, hey, Joel, grief quick. And I'm like, what? what? He went, grief quick. And I, went, <laughs> I was thinking, what does he mean, grief quick? And what he was basically telling me was to get over something, you know, like <laughs> get over it. And, and, uh, and, I was like, and I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, all right, yeah, fine, all right, I'll accept that and move on. I work on the premise that if you have a good idea, you're not that much of an ideas person if you don't have another one. You often give away an idea to somebody else that turns it into something else, that gives it to somebody else who turns it into something else. And collaboration isn't about forcing your idea down everyone's throats. It's about letting it grow. And sometimes it grows into a thing you just don't even recognise anymore. So it, it wasn't that you actually, someone killed your baby or you killed, you know, it wasn't like that. It was actually it killed itself by growing creatively in the process. And you're like, oh, God, you know, I wish it was still what I originally sat in a room and showed everyone or told everyone, why don't we try this? Everyone goes, yeah, great. And a month, two, five, six months later, a year later, it's completely different. But it, the essence of that conversation is there, but it's something so different. But I think that I've had these two 
kind of belief. Someone once asked me if there's any, you know, how, what do I do with creative block? And I was like, you don't, you don't work in film. You just get a different job. And they're like, oh, and I said, no, it's like a, it's a, a film student. I was like, if you get creative, there's no such thing. If you're an artist or, you know, struggling, you can have creative block all you want or a writer writing a novel, you know, hey. But if you're working in a professional medium, you're not allowed creative block. There's no, you know, you just have to smash through it. And sometimes creative block involves an idea that you're stuck to and you get freaked out about and you don't want to get let go of and all that stuff. And actually, I'm, I'm aware that these things change. They've got a life. A good idea has a longer life than a bad one. A bad idea, even if you think it's good, doesn't have a very long life. So either way, you get used to both a good and a bad idea, either dying or changing. And I think you could you, you kind of arm yourself with armory that, that stops you spiraling every time something changes that you have, you know, you know it's right. The other side of that is actually sales. Like, you know, I often tell students, like film students, that you could be the Russell, this is where Russell's good. This is my one of my things. It's like how you present something is so key because if you present it at the wrong moment at the wrong time or the wrong way, it, it could be a better idea than somebody else next to you presenting really shit idea, but in the best way possible. And so sometimes moving an idea forward, getting it to the finishing line is about the moments you choose to do it, the way you sell it, the steps you take through bringing that idea to completion because ideas creative thoughts visual ideas are just the easy bit of getting it to the screen or do you know what i mean they're the easy bit the idea is the easy bit the journey the kind of carrying of it like like a rugby ball <laughs> all the way to the other end of the field where you're literally being smashed everywhere is 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 what it's actually about and and so you know being agile being experience all that stuff and i think um so grief quick is what i'd say to you also like if you've got a good idea somebody else takes it or throws it away have another one never stick <laughs> never get stuck on it just move on it's good advice <laughs> with that in mind and with that journey of creation that you just mentioned kind of the opposite but is there anything within season one if you can cast your mind back that you were particularly proud of that did make it into the show that took one of those ideas that you mentioned and kind of ran off and became something different in the end Guys, so much. I mean, when you when you when you're kind of working across every idea, and I think that's the key. Is like when you're working across every idea, and so therefore every idea is close to your heart. Everything you do visually is close to your heart, and everything in the story is close to your heart because you've thought over every, you've looked over every line, you've discussed every detail, and you've thought about every visual moment. Guys, I loved it all. To be honest. <laughs> it's such a great. It's, it was such such great fun doing it. And the versatility of each one of those episodes of season one of the Northern Lights, in the versatility in it, the, the shifting sands of it were so vast in the sense of tone. Bolvanger, a mount, you know, you've got the mountains, you've got your Bolvanger, you've got your London, you've got Oxford, and you've got kind of chaos. Yeah, I don't know. I loved it. I loved it all. It was very hard. I don't have a specific because it's all a challenge. And and to be honest, you know, I, I started this challenge before it was green lit. I started this challenge with Jane and Dan McCullough to say to them, "Let's get. No, I'm going to make this show with you. We're going to make it. We're going to green light it." You know, uh, I think a big challenge was flying to America with Jane to try and talk about the show to all the brokers. Like, Are we going to make this show? Let's make this show. And I think for me, the most, you know, everything else is a bonus. Because once they said, yeah, let's, let's do it, once we got the kind of green light to go after all our hard work to convince everyone that this was a show that they should make, uh, and Jane's magic in the sense of kind of like, look around the eyes, look around the eyes, you know, <laughs> you're under, you will let us make this show. And the broadcaster's going, yes, Jane, we will let you make the show. You know, whatever magic she, she does to convince people that this mental thing that we had to do was going to get to screen. And, uh, and their, their faith, their brilliance in the sense of support from you know, BBC and HBO. So for me, that was the, the biggest moment of magic was getting the yes that we were going to go and actually make this show, you know, because I was in it before that moment came. I was in it before that moment was there. It wasn't, I didn't get the call saying we're making dark materials. I mean, I did, I did that, that we were going to make it, but, but it was risky because no one had actually said yes, you know. So really, I think getting getting the show to that starting block was utterly exhilarating and terrifying. And, and so everything else beyond that was just a bonus of pure joy in the sense of success and failure. I would love to ask, speaking of some of the riskier aspects of getting a show like this out there, I'd love to ask about how you went about tackling the magisterium. Because I know a lot of the critique that 
the film had when it came out and a lot of the conspiracy theories about why there weren't another two made were to do with the fact that the books are so critical of organised religion and that that can be something that's quite difficult when you're trying to get funding for something. And then the way that you've created the magisterium in the TV show is so visually interesting and I'd really love to kind of know about how you went about tackling that as an organisation and how to bring that to the screen in a way that feels right for you as a production? I guess the audience has slightly changed. You know, back when the film was made, it was a huge backlash over that, that part of the film. But the truth was that my, my thought was always that people never talked about it just being an alternate reality. You know, it's like, it's another world. Nobody ever said, what, what are you talking about, guys? You know, this is fantasy. You're in another world. Yes, it's, it's relating. But it's not our world. It's not like you get to Will's world and suddenly there's a priest going, come on, Will. You know, it's not our world. It's Lyra's world. And this is what's going on in her world with that controlling body that, that relates in some sense to something we recognise. But really, it's another world. And I, I was always fascinated when the film came out that nobody put their hand up and said, hang on, whoa, 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 you know, this is fantasy, remember? If you look at any period drama that isn't fantasy is actually just a period drama they often show the priesthood the vatican the they show a lot of stuff about people and they do it in a, in a really interesting and dark way you know they kind of go through period drama where they don't always show that stuff in favorable lights and that's that's kind of theoretically or historical drama and we're working in a complete the realms of fantasy in lots of ways so for me it was always just well we can kind of do what we want i think for jane she was like we're going to sound every note of the book we're going to stay truthful, faithful, and we're not doing it to any... To, there was never an intention to do any of that to offend anyone. And ultimately, because the book is its own world and the Lyra's world is its own world, I, I was just kind of disconnected it relating so much. I just tried to find the root of the history in her world, where these people had come from. They are like government. They're an authoritative body. They're not just the church. In our world, we've got all different types of the churches, the government, the you know the queen. That these guys encompass a huge authority within Lyra's world, and and they, it's way more nuanced than saying they just relate to one thing. You can relate them to lots of things. Let's say audience tastes change. You know, audience participate. You know, the way people view stuff changes attitudes change and yeah we definitely weren't going out to make things more complicated I think we're just trying to tell that story and the thing is as well like you mentioned times have changed I haven't heard any kind of backlash against the tv show in the same way that happened with the film so I think that does highlight that times have changed in that sense yes I think it's a bit like trying to pick at YouTube you know like if something's coming out in the cinema you can say, right, everyone go and stand out the cinema, and you, all you need is a few people with a banner to get in the news, and something explodes. It's very hard to pick at YouTube or a stream like a stream or online. Do you know what I mean? To like really go and like say, I'm standing in front of your your device while you're pressing stream, yeah, and telling you. No. So, so we're in a different world of the way people view, watch things. So from a, from a movie's perspective, you know, a few people can be can disrupt. A large on a large level but i think in television in, in the new era of television it's choice you choose to watch it or you don't and if you want to turn it off you can you can make your judgment quite quickly when you're watching something whether it doesn't suit you or not and as i say i've always looked at it like it's a different world it is the film is so fantastical the world is so fantastical that it's amazing that people were so keen to draw that comparison and similarity but that's what i mean you don't remember people saying oh by the way it's fantasy what are you talking about there's a talking bear right there <laughs> yeah there's a, talk, there's a talking bear so it feels like it's not quite our world so, but weirdly i just think that the people never got to that point of saying it and what's important is you know telling the story is more important and i think they never Maybe to our benefit, the film never got to tell the longer story and therefore we get to go back, revisit and move on and do it again, but for a new audience and in our way. With it being something that's being broadcast on TV, I know that that implies a lot of restrictions and stuff to do with the, what you can show at certain times. I was wondering if there is, um, so for example, in the bear fight, we don't perhaps get to see the level of gore that Philip takes such joy describing in the books. Is there anything like that that you wish you could have 
hammered home if this was uh, shown at more of like a Game of Thrones TV time slot? Or are you quite happy at the level it's sat because of the audience of the readers of the books? I do wonder, I mean, yeah, when the bears fought, they really made a bloody mess. Those bears were really vicious <laughs> with each other. And it was really, you know, they damaged the set. Those bears were like quite violent. And uh, we, we had to clean up after them. They, they, they Five bears killed each other. <laughs> No, um, I think what's interesting with the show, and maybe I'm like, like as I as we move on, is is the confidence because the the people in the show, Lyra, will they grow older? The the maturity of the show shifts slightly. You know, it didn't need to be gory. It, it was gory enough. It was emotional enough. You know, kids are dying in Bolvanger. A demon dissipating. You know, when Roger dies, it's, it's there's some really deeply upsetting things that happen that don't need blood splatting across the screen to show them. And I think that's part of the intellect of the book is, you know, that Philip does write that spurting finger in, you know, The Subtle Life or, you know, there's things that you, that kind of are, again, are are creating the feeling. And so we've always explored how do we put that feeling on screen? And we've not done it like, oh, we're not allowed. But weirdly, I think with uh, The Northern Lights, Lyra's kind of innocent. She's clever, cunning, but is is going from innocence to experience through through those episodes. She witnesses some serious stuff, but I never felt like, oh God, if we'd only blood splattered across the wall there, we would have made it a little bit better. Uh, it wasn't it wasn't the nature of the beast. I think as we move further into the shows, things get can be a bit scarier, a bit more dark, a bit more intriguing. Is there room for blood splatting everywhere? Not really. Is that, it's not the kind of, I don't think it's a very intelligent part of this, you know, but, but there is room for more challenging kind of emotional topics and, and, and slightly more disturbing elements that, that's come into play as we move forward, you know. Yeah, definitely. And I think you actually raised a really good point that I hadn't really thought about Obviously, I know there's a lot of dark stuff in there, but like it is such a dark series of books and the target audience, although it expands, it is kind of classed as a young adult novel. I remember saying to Rich, because I'd, I'd only read the books for the first time last year and Rich read them when she was a kid. And I was like, God, I can't imagine you reading these when, when you were a kid. I would have been traumatised. You know, there's really like upsetting, really upsetting things that go on. And, and they're not... They're not physical in that sense. They are, but they're not. You know, they're not jump scares. You know, they're, they're not blood and gore. They're, they're, they're emotional issues that stay with you. They're way more in, intense than, than a quick splat of blood and a, you know, like, ah! kind of thing. There's a way more intelligent intellectual element to this than, than that. So I, I think what's interesting is stopping maybe people taking things too far when they didn't need to. And again, that's one of my design principles in simple terms is, just because you can doesn't mean you should. And sometimes, you know, given the freedom to do anything, you can cock it up massively because actually you need constraint, you need restraint. The world is full of doors and barriers and walls and hard stops, issues and things. And, and if you just have freedom everywhere, you know, that's not real. So in some senses, giving kind of tightening things up around you makes you more creative to find the solution. I think in any world creation, the worst world creation is where you've just gone feral. You know, we can do anything. And actually, you sh- absolutely shouldn't. But you just, because nobody stopped you, you just went bonkers, you know? <laughs> yeah. There's definitely films out there that are victims of too much budget. <laughs> well, they're, yeah, well, they're victims of too big an idea. You know, if somebody said to me, you know, what's the world going to be like in 2030? It's, it's like on Black Mirror, someone's, you know, Charlie once said to me, what's five years going to be like? And I said, well, we'll either have smaller phones or bigger phones. He went, that's it. And I went, yeah. <laughs> Literally, and they'll either be smaller or bigger. And he went, you know, okay, well, 10 years? You know, so like literally there was a kind of, but one could have taken that and gone, well, the skyscrapers are going to be 50 foot tall everywhere and they're going to be made of plastic. There's a version of anything you can go way over where you are or you can pull down to its lowest common denominator, which the world is in. I'm going to move on to some questions that we've had from social media that we haven't already covered. So our listener, Sophie, she wanted to know what were the influences for the Egyptian sets and the boats and the costumes, etc.? The Egyptians, we were very eager for them to not be, kind of not be naff, crass, kind of. We, we were eager that they had a, that the, that the key thing they had was a heart as a group, that they were culturally as diverse and interesting and, intri- you know, and intriguing. They were like a group that if you followed them for hundreds of years, 
they had traveled the world in their boats and accumulated families and of all cultures and nations and that they were had a not refugee element but like had a had a nature to them that was the heart of the spirit was what formed them rather than material things and so we we looked at all cultures and kind of pushed them together in costume and character and design you know narrow boats become a little bit of a style and a type so we avoided narrow boats we got dutch barges and larger boats and created they were all interior sets the, the boats none of them were real inside but they outside we clad boats and what what the one thing i tried to do with that mid-century tone was bring a kind of well, as reels, I used aluminium a lot. So as a kind of deconstruction of the movie where everyone goes, oh, it's just loads of gold, you know? It's not that much gold, but everyone just sees the film as loads of gold, golden compass, and there's gold everywhere. And it's like the airship is golden red. And, you know, it's like, it's just there's this feeling that people had. And I was like, well, I don't want to go there. I'd rather use concrete steel, aluminium, you know, and we made the boats look like airstreams. So we basically built over loads of real real boats, airstream cabins, and then the interiors are like large airstream, you know, like the mid-century airstreams, aluminium caravans. So it's a kind of element of traveller, but it's a very cool traveller. So if you kind of deconstruct what we did, we brought that mid-century tone to the boats, which is unusual. They're usually a bit Victorian in the, in the, in the nature. And so we... we plugged in that, that, that mid-century feel and then used a very multicultural aspect to them and tried to use heart rather than anything else as the inspiration behind them. You know, whereas Oxford's about learning, Coulter's about style and uh, science and manipulation and damaged past and all the things that, you know, that every, everywhere had its flavour and, um, and the Egyptians needed to just feel warm and soulful. Yeah, I think that comes through definitely. And I think that's the main feel uh, for me anyway, that's the main feeling that I had about them in the books. And I think it transferred really well to the show. And like that, all of their costumes and things like that, everything just looked so lovingly mismatched and haphazard. And I enjoyed that a lot. Yeah, that was, and that's all kind of by design in the sense of it was an important, just a flavor. You know, this is stuff that I think one of, one of the things I, I say as well when people walk around is like the the, um, the truth of what things look like are in the accidents. And if you make everything too perfect, everyone notices it's fake. So the world is full of accidents. You walk around a street in London. If you build a street, you know, unless you fill it full of happy accidents everywhere, it doesn't look real because everywhere has got that little bit of cement and that little thing's broken and that little thing's rusted and that little thing's a bit off and that thing's been stolen and that thing's been broken. And life is that. And if you don't add that layer of life to things, it's always jars. So we went quite as far as we could to add the right layer of life to everything. History, life, logic, death, you know. If there was one prop that you could put on display in your house, what would that be? I mean, I think we might know the answer already, but... <laughs> yeah, I think you know what it is. <laughs> it was the glass the master used in the retiring <laughs> That's exactly what we had in mind. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and... Uh, or maybe, no, it wouldn't be the alethiometer. <laughs> who wants one of those? <laughs> who would care about that? I wouldn't. <laughs> Luckily, these things surround me anyway, because I've always got an alethiometer and a knife, a subtle knife and, and various things around just so I can discuss them with people. So I'm very lucky that I get to handle these props because they're quite important things to discuss with people about how they work, what they do. And uh, yeah, so, you know, they get boring. Who wants those things? <laughs> I mean, you can send them our way if you want. <laughs> It told me the truth. I made it, designed it, we had it made, and then I got all the truth I needed and then closed it because I was like, I don't want to hear any more. <laughs> it said 2020, COVID. I said, like, I don't even know what you're oh, talking God. about. But oh, I, God. But I closed it. Uh, if only. It said, go to, go to shelter. I didn't know what I was talking about. <laughs> oh, God, yeah, if only we had uh, a real alethiometer. Although I don't know what we would have done to prepare, to be honest. I don't think there would have been much to what we could have done. I think if, I don't think anyone would have believed Very it. Very true. This thing's broken. Can't be. Can't be true. Yeah. No. No. <laughs> no way. A question that we always like to ask is: if you could go back and tell yourself something before this whole process began, what advice would you give yourself? Well, I think I learned more uh, through the process about the 
production process, this scale of creating the show, uh, in some senses, than I did uh, about the creation of the environments, the worlds, because I love that job. That's something that's innately in me and I've done for years. Creatively, you want to make mistakes because you need to learn. But in production, you don't want to make any because they can be catastrophic. So you have to take two ways of thinking to make a show if you're part of the creative team and also part of some of the responsibility of trying to get that show made. You can't just go, let's make mistakes, it's all going to be great fun and it's all okay. There's one side of it that has to be immaculate, done perfectly, because it's a bit like making a rocket. Uh, it's a bit like making a spaceship, you know. You want to get to the moon. And you can't just fill it full of errors and hope it gets there. It has to be you know, really a well-engineered, well-oiled machine. But somewhere, the, the, the creator of that rocket used a lot of imagination, you know? So I think the most lessons I've learned have been about how complicated it is to make a show like this on the much broader level, from story, the script, to uh, the, the characters and the people, the human beings, you know, and those relationships, you know, how, how interesting, fascinating, complex uh, they are. The, the day job, as it were, making things look good, is something just in my kind of DNA. So, you know, and sadly, sadly for everyone else, that DNA just sports around and like goes all over the screen because ultimately it's like, I can't help it. It's like, it's like the people who've known me for years go, oh, God, that's so you, you know, <laughs> what you've done there is that, that silly decision or that funny thing or that, poster in Bolvanger or those hard-nosed weird things that happen or, you know, the silly things in the, the museum with Mrs. Coulter and Lyra, you know, all those little hidden gems. There's quite a few in there. I'll have to go back and look. <laughs> You'll have to ask you for a list. <laughs> so we will ask you one last question and then we'll let you go. And we ask it to everyone. And it might be something that you've already thought about. What would your demon be if you had a demon? The bush baby. Oh! <laughs> amazing do you have reasoning <laughs> big eyes and a slightly nervy disposition uh although i'd love to think i'm the most calm relaxed uh, character on earth i reckon that there's a degree of unusual behavioral kind of things that go into being creative and occasionally you know you might be a little bit twitchy or you know cling onto a tree staring in there with a, ah! <laughs> like that and there's a, there's a degree of that you know but while I'm trying to maybe explain something with a lot of energy, my bush baby's up the tree staring. Very <laughs> unnerved by the whole thing. Uh, that's a really good one. <laughs> I like that a lot. <laughs> okay, well, yeah, we'll let you go. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank we you so much. Really appreciate it. It's a it. pleasure meeting you guys. Oh, yeah, you too. Yeah, and take care. Hopefully we'll get to talk to you again after season two if you, if you would be up for that. Definitely, yeah, yeah. Just let me know. gosh that was so much fun it was so good oh thank you joel we appreciate your time and it was so much fun to talk to you oh we just love everyone that we've spoken to everyone's just been so nice everyone has been so nice and it's so interesting to hear somebody with such like drive talk about the show in that way it's just so interesting to hear about all these different opinions coming together into this big melting pot it's so great yeah, absolutely. Uh, he was a joy to talk to and we hope to be able to talk to him again after season two because uh, obviously there's lots of stuff we all want to know about season two. You could tell that he wanted to tell oh, us. Oh, he so did. And I feel like everybody <laughs> has. Everyone we've spoken to has been like, oh no, I can't say that. And we totally appreciate that and understand. But also we're just like, please tell us. <laughs> we want to know. <laughs> we do. We do. Uh, but yeah, hopefully we'll be able to speak to Joel and maybe the other people that we've interviewed too after after the second season. I'm just really looking forward to the second season. I just, I just can't wait. I'm so hyped for the second season. Oh my gosh. Well... Thank you for joining us, everybody. I'm going to go and freak out some more about how great this has been talking to people. <laughs> <laughs> yes, me too. We hope you enjoyed it. And we just love doing this and it's it's so much fun. Yeah, we appreciate the people that have spoken to us and, and Joel for his time and his enthusiasm. We love to see it. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
thank you so much for listening to this special episode of Herd Art Materials. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at HDMPod, and you can email us at herdartmaterialspod at gmail.com. You can also visit our website at hdmpod.co.uk. If you want to support us, you can become a patron at patreon.com forward slash hdmpod. You can also rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people find us. I'm Faye, and when I'm not talking to Joel, I'm probably writing. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Fayley, which is F-A-Y-E-L-E triple Y. And if you want to read some of my blog posts, I'm on Medium at Faye.Ducker. I'm Rachel, and when I'm not here chatting to you lovely folks about demons and dust, I'm making designer toys, art and illustrations. You can find me over on Instagram at Rachmakes, on Twitter at Rach underscore makes, and on my online shop, rachmakes.co.uk. A huge thank you to Joel for his time, and as always, to Johnny Knott for his musical stylings. We'll see you soon, and don't forget, keep telling stories, and all will be well. 